Hi, I'm Patrick. Hi, I am a grateful recovering member of Al-Anon. Uh, I started Al-Anon in 2003, and I have been uh, that that to help you with the math. That's about 11 years. And I have a sponsor. My home group is the uh, Solution Seekers AFG, which is at the NABA Club on Thursday nights. Uh, and this is their speaker meeting night, so I'm missing their speaker tonight. Um, I have a sponsor. I have a service sponsor, and my sponsors have sponsors. I also sponsor men. I have some guys who have been around for a while, and I have some guys who are relatively new, and it's 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 really really good. I came to Al-Anon. When I came to Al-Anon, I was in a lot of pain. I had tried a lot of things. And nothing seemed to work. And it really was, I was, I, and, and I heard this at a, at, a, uh, at a conference recently, I had been given the gift of desperation. I was desperate. I didn't know what else to do. And so I came to Al-Anon. Um, I was born in East Tennessee. Uh, I was an Oak Ridge boy before there were Oak Ridge boys. <laughs> Um, Oak Ridge is also known as the Atomic City, was also known as the Secret City, was also known as the Manhattan Project. My father came down from New York uh, in the Army. He was uh, drafted in the Army, got sent to Oak Ridge. My mother was working. Uh, my mother graduated high school in a little southern town near there, and they came to her high school recruiting for secretarial help. And they said, we need somebody to help we need secretaries to help with the war effort. And they said, where is it? And they said, we can't tell you. It was at one time the fourth largest town in Tennessee, and nobody knew it existed. It was, it was that hush-hush. Um, growing up, it was, a very, it was kind of a special town. My father was uh, very uh, strict uh, of a religious faith. My mother converted to that religious faith when we were little and was very strong, uh, both of them. My father, unfortunately, had been raised in a way that he really didn't know how to relate to children. He didn't know how to relate to, uh, to boys, and so I emotionally didn't have a father growing up. My mother, I think, could sense my pain, and she tried to compensate for that lack and over-nurtured uh, me. Uh, which is what she knew how to do. Uh, unfortunately, somehow along the line, she had gotten affected by the disease of alcoholism. So it was love, but it was love her way, and I had to do it her way. Um, I graduated in 1969. Uh, it was a great year to be in high school. It was a great, there was some fun things going on. Um, uh, our high school, unofficial high school model was sin, sex, booze, and wine were the class of 69. <laughs> and uh, we, we, uh, we were one year away from the summer of love. We had all the good music. The good music is the music they're still playing, and it's not on NPR. They're still playing music from that generation. In fact, people, uh, musicians from my age are still out there touring in their 60s because people are still paying money to go hear them. So uh, uh, it was good music. Um, when, when I grew up and I graduated, I went to college, 
And I knew that I didn't want to stay anywhere near home. I was such pain at home. I wanted to get as far away that I could. And I went to a little bitty college in upstate, New, uh, upstate Minnesota. And in upstate Minnesota, it was a totally different culture. I knew I was not in East Tennessee when the local bank had a sign out front that had a time and temperature sign. It flashed the time, it flashed the temperature. They had a contest. They had a contest to guess when it would be, what the time and day would be when it would first flash minus 20. I said, this is not East Tennessee, when they're guessing as when it will first flash minus 20. So, uh, but I was not ready for college. I partied a lot and just was so glad to get out of the house, was so glad to get out of the house, out of, out of that environment. Uh, and so I decided that uh, I really, I wasn't ready for college, so I didn't want to take my chances with the draft. We still had the draft then. I didn't know what my number was going to be. Uh, it was going to happen the next year, but I just decided um, I went in to the recruiting office and I thought I'd like to join the Air Force. So I went to the uh, local recruiter. Back then, there was only one recruiting office, and it was under the main post office in Knoxville. So I went down under the basement of the main post office, and they had Army, Marines, Air Force, and Navy, all right there in a row. And I went to the Air Force, and I mean, it was crowded. There was a bunch of guys there. And I peeked around the corner to Navy next door. There was no waiting. So I go into the Navy, I go into the recruiting office, and he says, such a deal we can, I said, I want to work on computers. Computers were new then, uh, and I liked it, I liked computers, and so I went in there, and they says, such a deal, uh, we can put you in this job classification one of which is working on computers, but there's some other things in there too, but if you'll just agree to extend for two years. So I went in on the six-year plan. For that six-year plan, I got a year and a half worth of advanced electronic training. I can fix any ANSPS 48 radar in the state of Georgia now. <laughs> it's a three-dimensional. It was, it was an amazing radar. Uh, it did have a computer, and I did work on that. And about two years in, I realized the Navy wasn't really getting my head together. I wasn't, I, I was seeing the world, but I was seeing all the same ports that sailors have been going to since the Phoenicians. And the same kind of atmosphere are in those ports that sailors go to. So I was seeing the world, but I really wasn't seeing the nice things that you see on the, that they see on, show you on the, on the commercials. That, that's not the world I was seeing. And uh, I realized as I got older, more and more of my father was coming out. And I did not want to grow up to be my, like my father. So I started, I realized that the Navy wasn't going to get my head together. And I started taking some actions. And I started doing some outside uh, programs, some counseling and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I got a little bit of relief. Um, I got out of the Navy, went back to college, got a degree in computers, um, got a job, and, but I, I really didn't, really didn't fit in with women, didn't really, really didn't do much. I uh, got involved with a, 
um, God was leading me. He led me in the Navy away from that organized religion that I had been brought up in into a different one. And God did some things in my life that I could see he was working in my life. And um, I came up to, uh, uh, eventually moved into Atlanta uh, in the uh, early 80s. Uh, had a college degree, had a, had a good job with a computer company, um, and God got a hold of me and decided that uh, he wanted me to get involved with church singles groups. <clears throat> I got involved with church singles groups, uh, did some stuff there, got into service, but I really couldn't find what I was looking for. And then in 91, I met a woman who really seemed to like me, which was, I considered unusual. And I liked her. And I told her, I says, uh, we got married in 91. I was 40. And I'm not allowed to say her age. That's state secrets. Women's age are state secrets. And that's nothing, none, none, not germane. But anyway, and I told her, I told her that we were going to be happy. And she says, well, how do you know that? And I says, because I'm going to make you happy. Now, I didn't realize that I couldn't make her happy. I had made Mama happy, because when I made Mama happy, I was happy. And so I felt like I could make her happy. And so that was my lie to her. Uh, unfortunately, she told me a complimentary lie back. She said, okay, I'll let you. And so we uh, both were living under this illusion that I could make us happy by me making her happy. And that went on for about 10 years. And after 10 years, I had done everything I knew, everything I could think of to make her happy. And she wasn't happy. And I wasn't happy. And we were both unhappy. But we both agreed that we knew that the problem was I hadn't done it, and so it was my fault. So I started getting back into more counseling and to uh, other things. And along that time, she had gotten involved with a local uh, recovery residence that used volunteers. And we were volunteering with them. And I saw men getting better. I saw men getting recovery through that residence program. And I saw that, and I'm going, I like what they got. I like what they're getting. Um, and it was my first exposure to the 12 steps. It was my first exposure to recovery. And I saw that by them doing the work that they were actually getting better. They were getting less crazy. And so I... Um, I, I saw that my weight was gaining over time, and I decided that, gosh, I must belong to that fellowship that talks about overeating. And so I got into that fellowship for a while, and I did a 12 steps there. Um, but I really, all I did, and, and what that talked about was in the 12 steps, we just can clean our side of the street. Well, I cleaned my side of the street and found it had a lot of potholes underneath all the garbage, that there were a lot of potholes there. And 
this program wasn't doing anything about the potholes. And a little small voice inside me said, Patrick, go to Al-Anon. And I go, no, I don't belong in Al-Anon. Al-Anon is for people who have uh, problems with a relative or friend that drinks alcohol. And I says, I don't have anything. You know, none of my relatives were alcoholics, my wife, my, my parents, my, my uh, wife's parents, nobody were, were problem drinkers. And I go, you know, I, I don't need to go there. And so I decided, no, I need to go to another program. And I tried that program. And after about three months, I go, no, I don't belong here either. So I really felt like it had been God who told me to go to Al-Anon. And so I says, well, maybe you know what you're talking about, God. <laughs> so I went to Al-Anon. I started going to Al-Anon. And in Al-Anon, I started hearing people talk about, yeah, before recovery, I tried to make people happy. I'm going, yeah, okay. And before Al-Anon, I would hear people say, yeah, I tried to control people. And I go, yeah, I... And every time somebody talked and said, yeah, before recovery, I used to try to fix people. I'm going, yeah, I, I kind of try to do that too. Every time somebody talked, I heard me. I heard me every time when somebody talked about what they used to do before recovery. And I go, I have every symptom. I have all the crazy behavior of somebody who had grown up in the disease. I was a picture-perfect candidate of, of acting like I had. And the only thing I know, you know, my mother was deeply affected and had a lot of these same traits, which is where I got them from. And she was raised at that small southern town with that southern religion that was very big in the south, and they didn't have alcohol. There was no alcohol in grandma and grandpa's house, none whatsoever. Um, but... I do remember growing up that we would wake up some Sunday mornings and there'd be somebody sleeping on their couch. And I'd ask mom, I'd go, mommy, who's that sleeping on grandma and grandpa's couch? They said, well, all the town drunks know that if they need to sleep one off, they can come to this house and they can have a couch for the night. And I also then remembered that about three doors down from grandma and grandpa's house was the neighborhood bar. So, they didn't talk about it, but I know that in my grandparents' generation, there was people who were affected somehow by the disease that affected my mother, which affected me. So, I do have qualifiers. I firmly believe that. I just can't put a direct name on them. And that's okay, because what I heard in Al-Anon, I heard Al-Anon say, this is not a self-help program. Al-Anon is not a self-help program. I can't help myself. Um, after a while, I started getting, started taking some of the solution, uh, some of the uh, sayings to heart. Started looking after myself. <coughs> realized I couldn't make my wife happy. That I, I had to make myself happy first. Um, things got worse because now I was getting selfish.
I was looking after myself first instead of her first. That did not go over well. Um, eventually, she saw the changes in me and decided to get into Al-Anon herself. Um, but initially, uh, I went to that meeting, and I kept hearing this talk about a sponsor, having a sponsor. And so I said, you know, maybe, maybe that's what I need to do to really, to really get the benefits of this program. And so I went up, and it was a typical Al-Anon meeting where there was 12, 15 people there, mostly women, maybe two other guys. And so I went up to one of the ladies there that I respected and usually had some good stuff to share. And she go, I said, I would like for you to be my sponsor. Well, she patted me on the hand and said, Sonny, that's not how we do it in Al-Anon. <laughs> You need to find someone, you need to find a man who has what you want and ask them to be your sponsor. And I looked at the other two guys there and I'm going, no, I don't think one of them. And so about that time, I also heard about the Saturday morning men's meeting down at NABA. Well, this was a ways away. Um, but I decided to try it out and it meets at 930 and there's usually at least 30 to 40 guys sometimes upwards 50 and 60 guys, and it's all Al-Anon, and it's all men. It's the same program, it's the same steps, the same recovery. It's a little rougher language than might you hear in, in a normal meeting, but other than that, it's, it's, um, it's a really, really good. And I got my first sponsor there because I really liked what he had. He was happy, go lucky, he was, uh, had not a care in the world. And I says, I want what you got. And um, the reason why I decided to get a sponsor was I had tried working the steps, and I said, step one, okay, I'm powerless. Step two, oh, I know about God. I've been involved with God for many, many years. Step three, okay, I'll turn my life and my will over to God. But that's step four. I just couldn't do that myself. I, I just couldn't figure out because... One of our characteristics is we got to do it the right way. We always have to make sure we do it the right way. And I couldn't figure out the right way to do it. So I went up to Larry and I said, Larry, uh, I need help. You know, I want you to be my sponsor because I need help with step four. And he says, oh, yeah, great. I'll be glad to help you with step four. Just as soon as you and I work steps one, two, and three together. So... Uh, I started meeting with him, and we met once a week, and he was old school, and he used the, uh, the purple book, the One Day at a Time in Al-Anon, also known as the ODAT. And we would go, and we would go in the back and look up step one, and we'd find the reading in step one, and we'd read it, and we discussed it. And he'd say, oh, see you next week. Do you know how many readings there are on step one in the ODAT? <laughs> We were on step one forever, weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. But by doing that, I came to realize I thought I knew powerlessness. I didn't really know powerlessness until I actually worked it with my sponsor the first time and taking that time to go through the steps with the sponsor. I really got powerlessness. And about that time, God brought me a object lesson. Um, one day, I was sitting in Atlanta traffic, like we sometimes do, and I was on 285, just almost dead still. 
And I was going up to Roswell, and I say, oh, I know the back roads through Dunwoody. I can just get off here, go through there, get on Robertson, I'll be right up in there. And so I got off the interstate, got up, got about halfway down Roberts Road and came to a complete standstill. Half of Atlanta also knew the back roads <laughs> and was taking the back roads. And so, but God said, yeah, you may be pushing the gas and you may be turning the wheel, but I still am in control. And I realized that, yeah, I was powerless over how long it would take me to get home. And it was still all in God's hands. So I worked step one with Larry and really, really, really worked step one. And finally, finally, he says, I, I, think, I think we're ready to go to step two. And I says, oh, I got step two down. I've, I've been in, God and I, we've done a lot together and I was raised and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Of course, Larry was of a different faith background than me. And he says, well, okay, tell me about your God. And I go, well, and I'd learned that I had to be completely honest. If I was going to get healthy, I had to be completely honest. And I go, well, the God I've been raised with, I feel like it's kind of watching, just kind of standing over there watching for me to screw up, and just waiting, just waiting for me to mess up. And he's, then, then Larry goes, okay, um, how's that working for you? And I go, well, I guess not really well. So then he, the question that changed my life, he goes, well, then I'd fire that God and get me a new one. And I had never heard that before. I had never heard of the concept of firing God. So I had a conversation with God, and I says, okay, God, um, Larry says I need to fire you and get a new God, so... Um, I'm just going to let you show me who you are. Just show up. And lo and behold, God started showing up. God started showing up in ways I had never seen him show up before. He started showing me things that uh, I would have never believed God, about God before, but he, it was him. It was obvious. It was undeniably God working in other people's lives and my life in ways that my old box of God that I was handed, that I had accepted, that didn't fit in that box. But now that I didn't have the box, I could see God, and it was really the start of my spiritual awakening. That was a new relationship with my higher power, with God, was uh, just letting go of that. Um, I did a four-step uh, I shared that four step and I shared my take to the grave secrets. Uh, we all have our take to the grave secrets. And when I sat down to do my first four step, my sponsor said, before you share, let me tell you some things. And he told me his take to the grave secrets. And I'm going, Holy cow, my take to the grave secrets ain't near as bad as that. <laughs> so now, whenever I hear a sponsee's fifth step, I tell them my take to the grave secrets first to put them at ease. And then I say, okay, now, what you got? 
And so I, I was able to share that, and it was really a load because what I discovered in doing my fourth step, in doing my fifth step, that I discovered I had character defects, but they were actually assets at one time. They helped me at one time. Now, they were just not serving me now. Uh, doing steps six and seven, working with my sponsor, he helped me see that my character defects, and I've worked all my life, all these self-help programs, all these things, I've tried to fix myself. And in working steps six and seven, I realized I'm not the one to remove my character defects. I'm not, my character defects are so ingrained, there is no way I'm ever going to get rid of them myself. And I have to become humble enough and become entirely ready enough and then humbly ask God to take them away. And immediately, I was free. Not. <laughs> no. God didn't see fit to humbly, to, to remove my shortcomings all at once. He knew that I couldn't have handled it. He knew that I wasn't ready for them to be all removed all at once. So, um, doing eight and nine... My sponsor helped me make a list of who I needed to make amends to. Who had I harmed? Who did I harm that I needed to go ahead now and make amends to? Who had I harmed that I needed to make amends to someday? And who I never needed to make direct amends to because it would harm them. And we made the list. And he also admit, admonished me, don't try... <clears throat> Don't, don't go on a road trip. Wait for God to bring the opportunities when it's right for the other person. It will be right for the other person. It will be right for me. Again, I had to rely on God and let him be the director of when amends were made. And he did. He did direct me to make the right amends at the right time. Um... Step uh, 10, 11, and 12, continued to take personal inventory, sought through God and, med and, and uh, meditation, and then having had a spiritual awakening. Step 12, definitely I have had a spiritual awakening in that I have a new relationship with God. I am in touch with Him to let Him do what He does. I stay out of the God business. Not only for me, but for other people too. So what has this done? What has this done as it now allows me to meet life on life's terms? Does it mean that things are peachy, keeny, and, and okay? No. Crap still happens. I'm ex-Navy, but I, I've, I've learned to change my language. Uh, uh, in 2007... My wife, uh, I had about four years in program. My wife had um, some, some years in program. And she got sick. And I tried to get her to go to the doctor. But she didn't want to go to the doctor. 
she had uh, what she called white coat itis. She she didn't like white coats. She kept uh, giving excuses and telling me that this ache and this pain, oh, she knows what that's about, and why does she want to pay money to have somebody tell her what she already knew? And I would say, and what school of medicine did you graduate from? So this went on for about, I, I think about nine months before, well, at least six months before she decided to go to the doctor. She went to the doctor. The blood numbers were so out of whack. He said, no, you got to go to a specialist. We went to a hematologist, and they did two weeks' worth of tests, and the, and the answer came back with um, a disease known as angiosarcoma. It is a very, very rare form of cancer. Um, it's like of all the cancers that happen, it's one in a thousand cancer. It's a cancer of the cells that line blood vessels. There's a one-cell lining of blood vessels, kind of like a Teflon coating. They're called endothelial scales, and they get their own very own cancer. But since endothelial scales are pretty much everywhere, it spreads like wildfire. We went from being diagnosed on August 28th, and I asked the doctor, I says, okay, um, back kind of an Al-Anon slip, I says, how is this going to work out? You know, what's going to happen, then what's going to happen, then what's going to happen, then what's going to happen? Because part of being a control freak is you want to understand things. And by understanding, I kind of got a little sense of control. And he goes, no, that's not how we treat cancer. He says, what we do is we look at the patient where they are today, right now, and we say, what's the one most important thing we need to work on right now? And we attack that one biggest thing first. And then, once we got that done, we go back and we assess again. And we say, okay, now, what's the biggest thing that she now needs? So... I said, so what you're saying is uh, do the next right thing and leave the results to God. And he said, yeah, basically. So we did that, and it ended up she passed away in November of 2007. So we went from diagnosis in August to her passing in November. And it really was kind of an answer to prayer because uh, I just had asked God, I said, if the end result's going to be the same, I would appreciate if you just make it quick. And he did. And I had lots of love and support the night, the night Trudy died. Uh, my sponsor was there. Her sponsor was there. Uh, uh, our pastor was there. There, there. Everybody was there with me and gave me support. And I had just, I had enough recovery where I could just say, okay, God, this sucks, and you brought me here, and you knew what's going on, and I don't know what's going to happen from here. Uh, all I can say is you're in charge, and I'm not, and I'm just going to keep doing the next right thing. And I had a lot of people that showed up and came and helped me out, and it was it was really a, I really got a lot of love and support from my Al-Anon friends and buddies. So I got through that, and I took a year off. Um, I heard in program, my sponsor told me, says, Patrick, don't get involved with any relationships for a year. 
And so I didn't. And my counselor said, my grief counselor said, that's wise advice because you'll get to grieve her all four seasons. So I grieved, I grieved her all four seasons. And the following December, I started getting involved with some singles. And I found some really good singles groups to get involved with. And at the uh, end of 08, beginning of 09, and then the middle of 2010, I found another woman. But by then, I had kind of stopped going to program. I had been through all this stuff. I had survived it. I said, you know what? I'm cured. I, I'm, I've got this down. I've, I'm, I'm, I'm recovered. I don't need this anymore. I was actually doing service. I was doing Alateen service. I was doing sponsoring an Alateen meeting that was having one or at least one or two teens a night, not much more than that. And I wasn't going to any other meetings for me. Um, do not recommend that. Do not do that. Um, I met a woman about nine months into this cure and we started dating, and she liked me, and I liked her, and we both seemed to have common values, and we said, and she was about my age, again, confidentiality, I can't say, but uh, she was about my age, and we says, we know what we're looking for, let's, let's go ahead. So we dated two, three months, and then we got married. Um, don't recommend that either. Um, we started, we started putting our house together, and we started having problems. And we started having more problems. And so I, uh, uh, we got into counseling, and we, uh, about six months in, counselor says, yeah, you're not here and she's here. It's like she's there and you're there. That's how wide our differences was. And he goes, now I can tell you, if you're willing to work on these, these differences are not insurmountable. We can bridge these differences. But it's going to take time. And she said, no, I got an easier solution. And she moved out. And she filed for divorce, and I got divorced. Now, so I'm widowed and divorced. Now, I always tell people, of the two, I'll take being widowed over being divorced because you get more dinners brought to you. <laughs> so, uh, that's the one I recommend. But, um, <laughs> I went through divorce counseling and um, realized that, and as soon as she announced she was leaving, I started going to meetings. And I started going to meetings. And I was making five, six, sometimes seven meetings a week. And I realized, no, I was not cured. I still have this disease. I still need to get a, a re-up re on the dose. Uh, about that time, I, I went to an out-of-town on vacation. I went to a meeting there, and it was kind of a retirement community community, and one of the ladies there, obviously uh, much older than me, but anyway, she's, 
She said, people ask her, said, yeah, my husband died 10 years ago and he was the alcoholic. Why do you still go into those meetings? He's dead. Why do you still go into meetings? And she said, because I ain't dead. <laughs> and I, I can relate to that. I can relate to that. I need to come to meetings. I need to work with my sponsor. Um, since then, I have, uh, um, as Ann said, I've gotten into service and uh, I started out, I was the maze webmaster for a while, and I ran into these things called traditions. I'd read them, but I never really knew what they meant until I started trying to do things my way. Not that I would have that component or anything. Um, and I tried to do things my way, and they said, no, no, Patrick, you can't do it that way. That's in violation of our traditions. But, but, and so... I started learning the hard way about traditions, and I have come to love the traditions because I can see how they help us work together, and not and they helped me keep myself in check, and myself doesn't start getting uh, out of line. Um, and as I get into service, every time it seems like, I take on, and I was told early on, I said, Patrick, anytime you're asked to do service, your automatic answer is yes, unless you've got a really, really good reason to say no. So unless I have a, usually I don't have a really, really good reason. And so I say yes, and I do service. And every time I do, it's like I'm opening up and saying, God, all right, I'm ready for the next character defect for you to work on. Because it always seems to percolate up. Every time I get into service, a new character defect percolates to the top, and I become aware of it, and then I'm going, oh, crap, there's another one. Okay, God, you got that one too. And I just keep doing the next right thing. And I keep uh, saying that, uh, God, you're in charge of this recovery that I've got. It's all God's doing. I didn't do it. And, though, I had, I had to do the legwork. I had to do the next right thing. And so I like to equate it. They, you go to the store, and they've got all these products that are magic. And the thing I hate to do, most of all, is clean the bathroom. Because back in the Navy, in the Navy, head cleaning was punishment. And I don't like, you know. And so all of these things are promising Oh, this is easy. Just buy me. This is easy. Well, of all the products, Magic Eraser promises to magically erase all of the dirt. Okay. Well, Al-Anon Secret Sauce is really kind of like the Magic Eraser. Yeah, the Eraser is the 12 steps. But the Secret Sauce is what you have to put in with it. You have to do the work. You have to put in, to the magic eraser, you have to put in elbow grease. In Al-Anon, we have to do the work of doing the steps with a sponsor, being open to service, and being willing to let God in. Because Al-Anon is not a self-help program. It's a spiritual program. And the steps get us into a new relationship with a higher power, however you want to define them. And I have seen so many people with a totally different concept of what their higher power is than mine, 
and they have the same happy, joyous, and free that I have. And I go, go for it. You know? So, it's not like you've got to have my God. You have your own God, but it is a spiritual program, and doing the spiritual, doing the steps gets us ready so that God can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Thank you. I'm Patrick. Thank you.